All right, so welcome back to Pearls of the Book Club. Today we're going to be taking on Chapter 10, The Working Day. So we'll start off with some introductions. Everybody can go ahead and say their names, their pronouns if they want, and what's something that this chapter made you think about your own working day or past working day? Something that made you go like, hmm, damn, I didn't want to be at work this long. And now Marx is telling me why I had to be at work this long. <laughs> so my name is Connor. I go by he, him pronouns. And I think one of the main things I took from the chapter is just the ridiculous excuses that capitalists will use in order to get whatever they want <laughs> out of the working day. It's like yeah. they, don't, they don't even make any sense half the time, but um, yeah, they're going to use them anyway. All right. My name is Faiz. I go by he, him pronouns. So I never actually, like I worked at a bookshop for three months. Wasn't, don't remember much of that. That was a few years ago, but I did my bachelor thesis also like a few weeks ago or a month now. And all I could think about is that I was not paid for all the work I did there. And yeah, I'm looking at this and I'm like, shit, I should have been paid. Look at that. I'm producing value. That's all I could yeah, think Yeah, they won. <laughs> yeah. Like <laughs> I, I was doing shit. I was like the means of production were absorbing my labor. And uh, yeah, I didn't get paid mm. for that. So yeah, that was my takeaway. <laughs> I'm Jess. I go by they, them pronouns. And... After reading this chapter, I am most upset about ever having been asked to work overtime. So, um, I mean, it's like, it's just a deliberate incentive to make me work past the amount, like my maximum working time in a day. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to talk about this chapter because it was like, it was pretty infuriating from a worker standpoint. Hi, my name's Ani. I use they, them pronouns. And something that I'm going to try and wrap my head around now is people at my job, it's very weird, but they will like push themselves to work beyond when they're supposed to. Like I've met people who will work like 9am to 9pm just out of boredom and people who will work through the lunch breaks. And now I really want to like understand why, like what is driving that pressure for people to keep on working past? Like why are they not being forced to do that? And is that a strategy that capitalists are going to use in other places? Hi, I'm Andrew, uh, he, him pronouns. And uh, I found this whole chapter just really humbling because like, I'm, I, I'm just a general laborer. I, I've been laboring for the past 10 years, just doing landscaping and digging and stuff like that. Looking back through this chapter, which is just filled with so much depressing and truly sad information. It's, it, you see like how far we've come, but also the effects that that electoral nudge really has and like this this chapter really laid that bare how ineffectual like electoral solutions to workers problems really is hi there my name's quentin uh he him pronouns and um yeah i mean i i agree with all the previous points um one of the things that, that this really made me think of is how I, I mean i've worked a lot of different jobs in my life um and one of the things, one of my first jobs was working in uh, quality assurance for uh, EA Games. It's it's in the game. They're a new sponsor, I guess. Um, but, uh, man, they would just work us crazy hours. And just the excuses and reasons they have for trying to convince you to work the extra time, um, it just doesn't change through the ages. It's the same damn excuses that these people are using over and over and over, trying to convince people to you know, give up their free time beyond the working day. 
So I, I found that rather striking. Yo, I didn't know you worked in game dev, but if anyone's listening has a shitty game dev life, like look up Game Workers Unite because they are looking for game devs and trying to help them. So should we start with Andrew's obligatory explanation of what we learned this chapter? <laughs> yes, yes. So chapter 10 is the working day. And in this chapter, we really get to read all the, the dark facts about what working conditions used to be for people from hundreds of years ago and how that translates to ourselves in the present. And especially in the first, uh, what I, I think it was the first four or five sections, it's a lot of information specifically on child labor and uh, the extenuation of the working day. So the first thing we really figure out from this chapter is that the working day is not a constant. It's a variable quantity, and the capitalist is always trying to extend it and then being pushed back again. So it fluctuates, much like all the other things fluctuate that we've been dealing with in all the previous chapters. So in that fluctuation, it can only fluctuate within certain limits. And that's what we're starting to, to get into in the first section of this chapter is is what are the limits to the working day? Like, so obvious there's, there's the time limit. You can't work more than 24 hours in a day because there's only 24 hours in a day. And then he also goes on to explain the limits of the workers and how they try and extend the working day to a certain point to where workers can only maintain themselves in a degraded state. And they're just, it, it, it's really laying bare all the suffering that workers, young and old, were dealing with between, I, I think he starts and, and he talks about 1400s at, at one point, and he goes all the way up to uh, 1860. So there's a lot of, lot of information about workers in, in this chapter. So I have one question about that. Um, when we're talking about like the development of workers, like capitalism develops over like a very long span, but it doesn't get this thorough analysis until like Marx comes along. Um, so does someone want to give some historical context as to like the, the breadth in terms of time of this analysis? Because Marx comes along, he kind of spells out how capitalism works, and then it's like 30 years later that capitalism reaches its final stage, which is imperialism, as Lenin describes. But there was a lot of like development up to the point that, uh, where Marx starts to analyze it, right? One of the developments that I remember hearing about is that the enclosure of the commons was like one of the first steps to start having private property where you make profit off of it. And a friend sent me a link today about this um, peasant revolt that happened in the 1500s in Germany. And they had like 12 demands. And I remember I, I read them in German, so I, I don't know if I can translate them all. Or the one I want to talk about was uh, one demand where they were like, you have to give us back the commons. And what I found interesting is that that was still... Uh, back when was peasants and not proletariat, wasn't like workers in cities, but it was peasants who were starting to see that we need the common land for everyone to get their firewood off of and stuff like that. And it should not be under private ownership, regardless if that person is a lord that divinely has a right to something like that. So that's 1500s. I know um, Federici had this, the like Caliban and the Witch was also detailing around that time how the witch hunts helped do that, and then you slowly had, I don't know, industrialization, which pulled people away from rural areas into urban areas. Damn, so that's what happened with the primitive accumulation on the commons. Federici also describes like the primitive accumulation of 
-hmm. reproductive labor and like women's labor so like what's the the length of the working day of a mom like that doesn't have a limit i guess yeah i don't i wouldn't actually know how to do that right now how to actually spell out like how to divide up a working day of a mother given all that we read about here it would take a while to think about that yeah, I think uh, I think it was Ani who last week pointed out um, how there are certain things that Marx does fail to take into account about like large aspects of the workforce that are he just kind of either forgets or omits in the form of of women yeah. workers in the workplace or the work that takes place in the home. So there's there's a lot to be yeah. expanded upon in there that he doesn't necessarily get into. I would argue though that as far as like what the concepts that we did cross in this chapter. Um, where he talks about how like child laborers don't even have time to to eat a meal that that they're just given food there on the floor while they're like working yeah, a machine yeah. or like oiling a machine or something that that would be, probably be the closest parallel to like a mother's labor is that like her her labor day um, doesn't ever end um, and that she doesn't even have time for the meal to like step off of the mm -hmm. floor the working floor to have a meal. <laughs> So, um, or at least that would be my perception <laughs> as a mother on how it feels um, that I like, like, I literally don't even have time to have a bathroom break alone without the labor that I have to put in. So like wanting to do it and like loving, loving the, the person I'm giving care to doesn't make it any less laborious. Yeah, like that was a point I was talking about with people too, is that just because there's love and sentiment involved not attributing a value to it on that basis because people will be like no you can't you know put a price on motherhood or on love it's just basically saying it's worthless because you're not you're not actively wanting to assign it value you're just saying it can't be assigned value therefore fuck it we don't pay them basically and what's the difference between a mother's love and a boss's love <laughs> <laughs> right that's exactly where i was gonna go with that is like that that just gives into the idea that like oh this is a family it's it's easy to exploit your labor when we convince you that you want to do it so badly that you don't need to be paid for it or you don't need to be compensated or you know don't don't need to be treated as if your labor has any value if you're convinced that you want it so badly that you would do it for free so like not necessarily with like parenting because like I don't expect to be compensated for it, of course, but like I still expect my labor to be treated as if it has value. That's basically like a midway, a midway between valuing normal labor and not valuing a mother's labor it would be the people who actively want to work overtime, even if they're not paid for it, just because they like their job and the bosses basically exploit that and say, oh, he loves it so much he's going to do more extra anyway and I don't have to pay them. Right, exactly. And as Michael Scott said, the office is a family. <laughs> <laughs> All businesses want you to think they're part of the family because family supports each other. <sighs> yeah, I was going to say, like, we're we're sort of joking about, uh, you know, the, the office being a family, but I have heard that exact language from bosses before. Yeah, say, like, well, you know, we're, we're all a family here. Like, don't you want to, like, stay late and help us out and do a night shift with these guys? Like, we all need to get come together and meet, meet this deadline. No, oh, fuck that. Business is the most personal thing there is. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But I also wanted to say, um, <laughs> I mean, this sort of thing, like, uh, over... 
I don't know if it's overlooking or leaving out of, of certain details like, uh, you know, in this case, like the unpaid labor of the home or emotional labor and, and you know, other things I'm sure that we could identify um, is pretty common in economic theory. Uh, there's a lot of sort of generalization in order to build a sort of working model. And then, you know, when something particular comes up, you sort of apply it there. I think one of the differences here is that you know, the unpaid labor of the home can actually very easily be integrated into Marx's models. Whereas in a lot of uh, sort of, uh, you know, neoliberal economic theory, um, these things that are left out completely disprove the model. I, agree with um, I just had a thought that uh, we did, we're doing working day now, but I don't think we actually defined how uh, Marx starts out defining the working day. So I have a few notes on that and I could uh, go through them a bit. So we can like lay a bit of groundwork. Go for it. So I don't know. I wasn't here last session when uh, y'all did chapter nine, but I have this one bullet point at the end where uh, Marx defines the working day as the sum of necessary labor and surplus labor. Necessary labor being the labor that the laborer does to basically produce value that's equal to their wages and transferring the value of the means of production they have into the commodity they're producing. So uh, I, I posted the diagram on the voice chat text. It's basically if we draw a line from A to B, that is the length of that line signifies necessary labor. And then we draw a line from point B to point C, that line would signify uh, surplus labor. So, uh, for example, if it necessary labor in this specific time period, this specific social conditions is uh, six hours, then a seven-hour working day contains uh, six hours necessary labor and uh, one hour uh, surplus labor and so on for nine and 12-hour working days. Now, one thing that you can get out of that is the rate of surplus value, which is equal to the rate of surplus labor time divided by necessary labor time, which uh, on a diagram would be length of B to C divided by length of A to B, or seven-hour working day is one over six, since we said surplus labor is one hour and uh, six are the necessary labor hours. And this is also the rate of surplus value you produce. So you can say that I was given X value and I produced one over six surplus value over it. Or in the case of a nine hour working day, 50% extra value or 12 hour, which would be 100% uh, surplus value. Editor's note, this diagram is available in the show notes. Oh yeah, exactly. So the uh, variable part of the working day. So then, so we now split the split the working day into necessary and uh, surplus time. So the fixed part of the working day is the necessary labor time because that's also the time the time you need to reproduce your labor power to produce value that reproduces your labor power. The variable part is determined by the rate of surplus value that you want to have or that the capitalist wants to have, and that's why the working day is a variable quantity. Now, under a capitalist mode of production, the minimum working day cannot be calculated by setting the surplus uh, time to zero. But you can have a maximum limit of the working day, which is determined by two points. The physical limits of labor power, which is the need to actually like feed yourself, clothe yourself, sleep, wash, like just, I don't know, keep up a decent living. And secondly, the quote-unquote moral obstacles, which constitute the time needed to satisfy intellectual and social needs 
which are determined by the type of society around you, which should include also uh, socializing, spending time with family, and all that. And one last point I found in section one, which was really interesting, was that overexerting a laborer, which would cause a decrease in their lifespan, while simultaneously paying them the average daily wage of the normal lifespan, basically robs them of more value of their labor power. So if you if your lifespan is 30 years, then you are getting paid per day one over 30 years. So 30 times uh, 3,600. But if because you're being overworked within your normal working day, you end up only living 10 years and you're still getting paid one over 30 years per day, you're basically being robbed of two thirds of your value because you're going to literally die before getting the value back that you should have. That passage was really sad. Yeah, you really start to see the cynical capitalist who's like realizing that like up to a certain point, even if they work us too hard and they kill us, the first thing they're going to realize out of that is their failure to generate as much revenue out of us as they could have. Right. Like you start to see some of these really cynical notes in that regard at this point. And like, it's dark. Yeah. Right. And he goes on to even say things like the capitalist doesn't even care. They, they'll they just basically dispose of your body and, and get a new body to exploit because they don't care. And it's just kind of really sad. This really reminded me of um, I was uh, working at a company where it is a very sort of high stress role and working with a bunch of other people who are kind of doing the same thing. And um I was I was in a, a team lead sort of position there, and we were talking with the management, and we we're like, "Yeah, like we need to uh, regulate the amount of stress that we put on people, so that we're getting as much out of them as possible, but we don't stress them out so much that they have a nervous breakdown and quit." So it's like a different level, but it's the same logic. And now the opposite side of that is like at these big tech companies, people are really, really paid very well. And yet they're still extracting a lot of surplus value out of them just because of how much value is being produced by that technology. So when you look at like, you know, oh, people are actually going to produce more if they're comfortable at their workplace, that I don't know how long that holds true. Like what rate of profit is required for comfort to be something that the capitalist prioritizes? And then when would you expect that to start going away once the rate of profit falls enough? So in that regard, uh, one of the things we get into in, in section two right at the beginning is that as the demand and value of commodities increases, so too does the degree of exploitation of labor by the capitalist. They genuinely don't care in that regard until it comes into contradiction with their rate of profit. So the more there's demand, the more they will exploit endlessly until they hit that physical barrier of I can't work them anymore. I, it's, it's degrading my workforce and my value is dropping. So something that I found was uh, even more upsetting, which actually plays out to be mostly true. So he talks about like, yeah, a capitalist can exploit your labor, but it's not really, he thinks that it's going to matter on the way that people view your company. So he says a manufacturer which has assumed so prominent a place in the world will not long be subject to the remark that its great success is accompanied with the physical deterioration, widespread bodily suffering, and early death of the work people by whose labor and skill such great results have been achieved. And I, it's really super sad that that's not really what's happening. Like that on some 
some small scale people are like oh man it's like super bad for workers but like for the most part they get away with that exploitation and the physical deterioration widespread bodily suffering and early death is just kind of like part of the package deal yeah. yeah, I mean, if you look at companies in the fashion industry, such as Nike or Primark, they're just really well renowned for the exploitation of workers. But I mean, they're still selling stuff if it's cheap or if it's what people want. It's it's not going to affect them in the long run. Right, exactly. And then people are like boycott Amazon and there's a whole boycott Amazon strike. And then two weeks later, people are like, oh, shit, I needed Amazon. And then they just reinstall. It's like it. this goes out the window as soon as monopoly power gets invoked. Yeah, yeah. And especially that um, I've heard that Amazon's also trying to gain monopoly over like groceries now because like groceries have a really low margin of profit, apparently, like vegetables and fruits and that. But Amazon can undersell, which basically which is actually touched on in this chapter with with bakers underselling below price because they can take the losses, mm -hmm. like even if they're not actually playing with the product. It's a bit different than the example shown in the chapter, but because they're such a big company. They can undersell because they're making so much profit somewhere else that they'll do this for a while to kick out competition. Also, our tax system actually favors that. That's why Amazon or how Amazon got wealthy in the first place is they undersold their books for several years and took like tax losses at the fact that they were underselling their product. And then they took all of the money that they didn't have to pay to our government to participate in our economy. And they turned that into Amazon as we know it as it is today. Because, I mean, Amazon was, it used to just be a book site. So, yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's like a tactic they've used several times. And our, our tax system favors companies that are trying to do this. Yeah, and I'm like writing a paper on how Amazon has grown and all this stuff right now. So that, that's definitely a big piece of it. The two other things are like, one, that they convinced investors that growth matters more than revenue. And so they got the buy-in, they got enough capital that they could uh, like survive without making a high revenue for a while. And then once they get the monopoly, like they did in diapers, they boost the prices up. Did they have a monopoly on diapers? Yeah, they, they are now, uh, they like bought out diapers.com, which was like the last diaper retailer that was on Amazon. So the story becomes like, oh, you have four retailers on Amazon, like one of them will become the monopoly retailer and then Amazon just buys them. It, that's not happening on a wide scale yet, but I, that sounds like the future. But I don't think this is so related to the working day. I think we're going to like come yeah. back to Amazon a lot as we get into Marx's theories about accumulation and stuff. Yeah, yeah. of course. Uh, what I like one thing I found interesting on the working day that I had never thought of before is how Marx literally goes into like, you take 15 minutes out of my lunch break every day. This accumulates to a lot of shit that you're not paying me for. And I had never thought about it like that. I had really never like considered that these 10 minutes or when they tell you come a few minutes early so you can open up the shop, but that's outside of your paid hours, then you're not getting, because I had that in my bookshop, I just remembered, where they would ask me to come in earlier. And like, no, you told me to, I come work from 10 to four. If I come earlier, I'm leaving earlier. And they would like go up and like they would, the, the management would get angry. No, no, you have to help us. You know, you have to open the shop. I'm like, no, I have mm -hmm. to get paid for the hours I work. You know, and this is before reading Marx or anything. I was just like super weirded out. Why are they asking me to come earlier than when they told me my shift is? Or the concept of having to be like working when you clock in. It's like, no, actually, you're already using my time. 
Like why, yeah, why do I have to, cause like I've, I've had restaurant jobs where like you have to get there, you have to put on your fucking uniform, like you have to like do whatever to prep and then you clock in and start your day. And it's like, you're expected to be there half an hour before your shift so that you can prep in the way they want you to prep, but you're not getting paid for it. So it's just like, it's complete bullshit. And I think a lot of this comes from like self expectations as well, sort of drilled into us via, uh, I mean, well, North American culture, but also just to the Protestant work ethic. You know, I was always told by my parents, like, oh, you know, don't take too long of a break. You don't want to be, seem lazy. You know, you want to you want right. to bubble up in the organization. You're going to put in the extra hours. Maybe don't get paid, but you know, maybe the boss will see that, give you a little pat on the head. It's it's baked into our culture quite a bit to hand over this time. Yeah. Um, at Amazon, actually, if you're a software engineer, you're expected to go on call for your team in most cases. So, you know, you're literally working 24 hours a day in those weeks when you have to go on call. But you're a salaried position, so you don't get paid for that. And that means, like, right. when something goes wrong, you have to be ready to, like, pull your computer out at any moment and start looking at what's wrong to fix it. That's also, like, the, the majority of our medical industry, like are they're not getting paid for the fact that they're working 24 hours a day for like most of their lives being on call or whatever. Yeah. I've noticed that on the low end of salary wages is where you see like some, like in, in modern America, some of the highest degrees of exploitation where you get these people with the whole carrot and stick routine. And they really like, I mean, it's, it's class trader mentality, but they totally think they can get this this leg up and and they like they're usually the angriest people there for a reason because they're working 60 hours a week every week because they signed on for this $30,000 a year salary and like particularly in my line of work I've noticed that construction uh like low level construction company like managers the the wannabe long-term guys at at landscape companies they're the most miserable people you've ever dealt with because they're dealing with some of the highest degrees of worker exploitation there is in America. And it's just like, they don't see it because they're chasing that carrot. So I found that quote about how you end up kind of giving up a portion of your life. It says the occupation instinctive, almost as a portion of human art, unobjectionable as a branch of human industry is made by mere excess of work, the destroyer of the man. He can strike so many blows per day, walk so many steps, breathe so many breaths, produce so much work, and live an average, say, 50 years. He is made up to strike so many more blows, to walk so many more steps, to breathe so many more breaths per day, and to increase altogether a fourth of his life. The result is that producing for a limited time a fourth more work, he dies at 37 for 50. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like that especially is like the laborers. <laughs> Wasn't that actually a quote from from a report that he read, or was that him writing? Um, he's talking about the blacksmiths specifically. Yes, exactly. I remember that. Yeah, quote. yeah, yeah. And about how like the blacksmiths themselves, their job should be ideal uh, because they're yeah. doing what they love, and it's like they get mm -hmm. to go and like make their craft. But the problem is, is the the art itself by being forced to do an excess becomes like the deterioration of his own life. So like even labor that you would love to do because you're forced to do it so much is like literally ending yeah, your life yeah. early. This is something that again, really tied my experience to sort of this, this historical experience in that 
Yeah, I mean, like looking around like jobs that are really well sought after, um, you know, like uh, in Berlin, we we have uh, a lot of people in like the music software business and they're all like DJs and stuff. They all want these jobs because they want to work in like the music software business is something that they love. These positions are all super underpaid, you know, and often with crap benefits and everything else. But, you know, they put up with it because it's, uh, you know, a, a bit of a vanity job, but also it's it's related to what you love. You know, it's related to what you want to do. So it's it's absolutely exploited to the, to the fullest extent, you know. Like one thing you guys probably did the last hour in the last session, right? Yeah. The the concept of the last hour that he touched upon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's basically like when you try, when you say you have six hours of necessary labor and then six hours of surplus labor, and then you're like, let's reduce the working day by one hour. And the capitalist is like, no, you're taking away one hour of surplus labor. And Marx is like, no, it doesn't work like that. You know, because the same way I do six hours and six hours, I can do 30 seconds and 30 seconds. So when I take away an hour, I'm taking away from both, and I'm not actually reducing your rate of surplus uh, value, really. But I, what I found really interesting was when he put this, He was this is section two, the voracious appetite for surplus labor. And he was, I think, trying to make a distinction between like a full-on working day type of labor where you your necessary labor and surplus labor are very intertwined, like every moment you're working is is both necessary and surplus but in the case of like peasantry in i don't know how to pronounce it the corvée corvée is right um, i think it is corvée yeah corvée right um the, you you actually have both a spatial and a temporal difference between when you're doing necessary labor which is when you're working on your own land on your own time which are probably three days a week, five days a week, you work on your own land, then one day for the Lord, or I don't know, depending on the current, the peasant population in that area. And you actually have this, this spatial, because you, when you go work the surplus labor, which you're supposed to give to the uh, Lord or Boyar, I think is the example he put here, you actually go to their land and work on that time, like on a different, okay, yeah, maybe the tempore, like this, you can actually say this is six hours of surplus labor that don't have any necessary labor attached to them because you're both working on someone else's land and for someone else that whole time. But then he also makes the point that this, not that this is better or worse, just that in the case of capitalism and in, in the capitalist mode of production, they want to increase the working day because the aim is the production of surplus value itself, which gets increased by increasing the working day while under a sort of feudal system they'll tell you you have this one day but uh you're gonna have to produce out of that one day what you what you can only produce in two days so you end up having to take some time out of your own necessary time to go to the lord's land and work two days instead of one because of the amount that they put instead of the capitalist which says you have to work 12 hours the feudal lord will say you have to produce in one hour what you physically can only produce in two so you end up taking two hours anyway yeah sorry that was just an interesting point i found in trying to split that stuff around um were there any other key theoretical concepts so uh sections five and six were mostly history of like the labor movement in england 
So it was really relevant as to like the way that capitalists will um, try to like subvert any like worker progress as far as like changing the laws in their favor. So that that was really like eye opening and but I don't know that it needs like extra examination, but really the point of it was that constantly these workers were trying to gain protection for things like reasonable work days and like uh, capitalists were constantly like finding ways to subvert it either within the law or outside of the law and making sure that they were not um, subject to the law. And so like that, I mean, I think we're pretty like acutely aware of how that happens in um, our current capitalist system, especially because that that's like they make the law. <laughs> and so, uh, and that was basically what was happening there too. So Marx just really vividly illustrates that like push and pull and tug of like capitalists trying to keep power over the workers and the minimal progress that they made. Yeah, I found it especially painful reading about, uh, you know, these uh, workhouse owning Victorian capitalist pricks trying to complain about, you know, no, we we need to work the, the five and, and six year olds. Otherwise, we're going to go out of business. And, right. you know, you you have to laugh because, you know, <laughs> what else are you going to do? But it's it's the same logic that's being used to subverts um you know any sort of uh you know quote-unquote progressive movement uh in in modern capitalist states now is like you know no we we can't you know pay for good health care because it's too competitive of a market and we'll go out of business like no it's i think you can it's fine <laughs> you can you can work other people other than four and six-year-olds one little conceptual thing i guess he also mentions like how shifts are or came to be basically and it's because you can only work somebody for so long during the day and they wanted to make sure that there was production all day so um basically it's like the machines can still be working so there has to be somebody here running them and so they had all these different types of shifts where it would have like people working 12 to like 24 or 36 you know a fortnight um working on these machines on their shift and so like but that was like the concept of it was shifts were designed to keep production going 24 hours because the person itself could not be exploited for the full day like just to put all that into context we did like uh, so section one and two is where he goes through the theoretical basis of you know what a working day is uh the appetite for surplus labor and why you want to extend the working day and then sections three, at least, was very heavily just branches of English industry, where he actually literally goes through like child labor, then pottery industry, uh, matchmaking, the matchmaking, Jesus, that's not the uh, manufacture of matches is very different than matchmaking. <laughs> um, yeah. That didn't even occur to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he's got a really good, uh, a really good quote about the, the matchmaking industry um <laughs> he, uh, he says dante would have found the worst horrors of his inferno surpassed in this manufacture like that is that is yeah, some yeah. spiciness <laughs> that's brutal and also that's like the entire global south right now and the reason mm -hmm. like it, it's just put out of our view because it's far enough away yeah yeah so yeah marx does not have tinder he doesn't go into matchmaking um, <laughs> 
uh, and then he goes uh, baking. Baking was like really weird for me. I did not know that you could do like you could exploit someone that heavily when you're just hiring them to bake. And then yeah, section four is the why we have day and night shifts. And I found this one concept really illuminating, which was yeah, idle means of production, which are those that are not absorbing labor right now, lose their character as capital for that time and are therefore a pure loss for the capitalist. Like literally that's how they see it. That's why they wanted like full 24 hour shifts all year round, basically. Just to be warned, like chapter, like section three is just a bit like tough to read if, you know, you start reading about children, six year olds who are like, oh yeah, I work 15 hours and I, my dad had to carry me because I couldn't walk. And, and yeah, it's just. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was an extra bad. There's a part two where in, in section three, where he says, um, Englishmen always well up in the Bible knew well enough that man, unless by elective grace, the capitalist or landlord or sinecurist is commanded to eat his bread in the sweat of his brow, but they did not know that he had to eat it daily in his bread, a certain quantity of human perspiration mixed with the discharge of abscesses, cobwebs, dead black beetles, and putrid German yeast without counting alum, sand, and other agreeable mineral ingredients. Yeah. Yum. I love that. Yike. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I I love how we all sort of have the same quotes highlighted because it was the exact same one I had. They were vivid. Also the Dante one. (laughs) Yeah. There's one where he says, uh, actually, it's a quote from John Wade, the cupidity of mill owners whose cruelties in the pursuit of gain hardly been exceeded by those perpetrated by the Spaniards in the conquest of America in the pursuit of gold. Okay, so something I wanted to bring up was commute times. Um, Why the hell don't I get paid for my freaking commute? Like, I don't want to be on a bus. Right, and Mark says that too. He said, like, the working day itself is not 12 hours. It's actually 14 because you are actually traveling an hour to get there, an hour to get back. Which at the time, that's what he was saying is like, so actually the 12 hour workday is shit because you're working for a lot longer than that. And Federici brings up during like feudal era, sorry, feudal era after the Black Plague, laborers had a lot of leverage because a lot of laborers were dead, um, supply and demand. And so for a period in like the 15th century, I think, you would actually get paid for your commute. Oh, damn. Damn. Well, that sounds nice. Was it the peasant war that ended that, I think he said? Where he goes in about the peasant war and how after that they just cut back every little liberty the uh, the 15th century peasant had. And like that when they come into the 16th century, it's just like the peak horrors of feudal society. Here, I'll, I'll find the exact reference for this. Fun fact. Like, this is, this is very optimistic. Like, we only have to kill two-thirds of the working class so we can guarantee our rights. <laughs> right? Why are... I'd rather kill the entire percent of the capitalist class <laughs> and just leave us be. <laughs> I mean, figuratively. Figuratively, of course. JK, yes. JK, JK. <laughs> just kidding. We're just going to liquidate them. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I think France brought in some legislation where they pay workers to commute to work. But only Oh yeah. But I think only if the place that they work varies from day to day. 
Uh, and the thing is, like, I live in Boston, and the housing crisis here is unbelievable. Like, if you're poor, you're going to have a shitty commute. And that gets worse over time because the fucking capitalists don't want to invest in public transit infrastructure. So your half an hour subway ride can easily take, like, an hour and a half on a bad day. Uh, you might get fired for that, let alone get paid for it. That's exactly the case here in my city. Like, we honestly... It, the poorer you are, the less likely you are to have an ideal shift, like, during times where the buses are running at peak times. But, like, like if you think about it, our buses actually stop running, like, today on Sunday. It'll stop running at, like, 7.30. 7.30. What? Like, holy shit. You know how really? many, like, the, the people useless. who have the least, like, uh, autonomy when it comes to, like, shifts that they get to pick and get paid the least amount? They have to work weekends. So, like, they're the people that are most likely to be taking public transit and the most likely to get, like, stranded walking several miles in the middle of the city in the middle of the night because sure. our public transit system ends at 740 at night. So, like, yeah. Sorry, I uh, I haven't found the excerpt on the paid for commute time yet, but this amazing quote. This is how an early 16th century writer whose words reflect the viewpoint of the nobility after the Black Death of the labor crisis, summed up the situation. The peasants are too rich and do not know what obedience means. They don't take law into account. They wish there were no nobles, and they would like to decide what rent we should get for our land. Those damn peasants. So uh, <laughs> greedy peasants. Uh, <laughs> damn peasants are too rich. Oh my god. Gotta know their fucking place. Jesus. Um, quick question. Um, this is the second or third time we've referred to Federici. Who's Federici? <laughs> so Silvia Federici is a Marxist writer. Um, she extends upon Marx's work specifically analyzing the primitive accumulation of women, I guess. So mm -hmm. one of her key works is Caliban and the Witch, Women, the Body, and Primitive Accumulation, where she describes um, kind of like the same stuff she saw in the turn from feudalism to capitalism with respect to women's rights she got to observe while living in nigeria when the imf went in and did like structural adjustment and austerity measures so that's that's like all of her writing and it's built upon marx's work she she really questions marx describing the turn to capitalism as a progressive thing because she mm -hmm. says actually like a lot of people's lives got worse in the turn to turn from feudalism to capitalism especially women that's awesome. If you could um, maybe put uh, a, a couple of those those uh, book titles um, in oh, the note. Oh, yeah, that sounds a good idea. Uh, yeah. I've been looking for more uh, Marxist feminist uh, writing to to pick up. It's really, okay, really fucking sure. hard to find. Just for the record, like if someone were making an episode <laughs> about it um, and trying to find <laughs> oh, fucking shit. resources for it. <sighs> so, yeah, there's a really, there's a huge gap when it comes to analyzing the way that we treat each other interpersonally and the way that we view gender and just sex as a whole, as far as like through a Marxist lens, it's really, really hard to find much in that way. Yeah, I tried to pick up something when I was in London, uh, poking around at the different Marxist bookstores there. And um, I got something that was a history of the Russian Revolution, and it was supposed to be more from a women's standpoint, but it ended up not being that at all and totally glossed right. over the women's role for the most part and then ended up going into a bunch of Trotskyist bullshit at the end anyways. <laughs> right. So there's like this huge gap in like uh, materialist analysis of like the way that we treat sex and uh, gender 
And even the people that talk about it right now, and like both the people that are talking about it now and like from a theoretical perspective, there are huge gaps in the way that we're perceiving it and we're treating it as if it's like this gender war. Whereas like historically, yeah, there were huge things that have happened through the lens of like gender struggle, but that is really like reductive um, from class war in my opinion. And we have not really had um, an unbiased or I guess less focused lens on on feminism and Marxism. Federici is a great like person to read and I'm, I haven't read Caliban in its entirety. I have started it, but like it's just so fucking hard to find anything that doesn't have like a puritanical background or um, a patriarchal background when trying to come at the the topic. What does puritanical mean? What's that? Puritanical? What does that mean? Like uh, like religious piety and purity. Ah, okay, okay. Um, okay. like Puritan like. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's there's some huge reflections of like religious patriarchy mm-hmm. in modern interpretation of sex and Marxism. So. Yeah, I may have a lot of shit to say about that, but I'll save that for my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, if you're looking for writings on that, it's really hard. Isn't yeah. there this one woman Bolshevik? What was her name? I don't know. The one Alexandra uh, Kolontai. Yeah. yeah, is that is that something close to that, Jess? I don't know. Uh, Kolontai. How's it spelled? K-O-L-L-O-N-T-A-I. Yeah. Kolontai is definitely worthwhile to read. I want to read her in the future, but I don't think any Marxist Leninists have read her yet, or like mm-hmm. I haven't seen any writing on it. Um, okay. So the mm-hmm. the two other things. So I wanted to understand like the queer question, and to do that, you kind of have to start with understanding the women question. Oh, why that's I'm what I'm. Under- yeah, that's mm. what she specifically seems to be known for. Mm. And then uh, the other author is Leslie Feinberg, who's run a written a ton of stuff on like trans and queer people throughout history um and if you want something modern psl actually has a socialist feminist magazine called breaking the chains which you can subscribe to so that's gonna be i I don't know how much of it is news versus like theoretical analysis but definitely worth a plug nice and i i finally found the quote from federici describing the golden age of the european proletariat so a utopian utopian image is painted uh, because wages in England were so high and food so cheap. Workers were sometimes paid for every day of the year, although on Sundays and the main holidays they did not even work. They were also fed by their employers, and they were paid a viaticum for coming and going from home to work at so much per mile of distance. In addition, they demanded to be paid in money and wanted to work only five days a week. So what this really tells me is this would be a fantastic thing to agitate around because... Like, I just know talking to some of the people who don't really think politically in my life, you know, why do you have a 40-hour work week? We all want vacation days. We all want three-day weekends. Why do we get this amount of holidays? And who decides that? And what if we could have more? Yeah, I think that, you know, I've tried having that discussion with people in the past. And the thing that I run into, well, sometimes is that this stuff is really taken for granted and they don't think that it'll ever be taken away. I don't know. I mean, you can you can also talk about how these things vary in different areas where they've fought harder for it. Um, like the, you know, the the amount of mat and pat leave, I mean, even in Canada. I mean, Canada has pretty good mat and pat leave uh, versus what you have in the States. 
um, it's it's uh, unthinkable, you know, really that a lot of workers in the States would like, what do you mean? I can take like six months off and still get paid while I like care for my, you know, my my child. You know, it's it's uh, people don't think it can be different. That's that problem. It was different in the DDR. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Uh, it, but that's literally you're getting paid for your labor, which you're putting into raising your child who's going to be part of the labor force. Like that is how it should be, because that's how we value. Like that's how the current system of production works, where you need the other workforce. So there is no reason why you should not be paid when you're gone taking care of your kid, because it's not like you stopped working within the system. It's not like suddenly right. you're out of the production cycle. Well, You're that's why, like, it. the GDR had things like kindergartens and, what are they called, creches available for um, new parents and stuff. And, like, women actually have the ability to work and be part of the workforce. And, like, the mm-hmm. the labor of parenting wasn't placed solely on the parents or the mother, especially, which it tends to be so often. Mm-hmm. So, like, especially the GDR makes me very sad <laughs> that yeah, it no yeah, longer exists. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what Marx's analysis gives us a viewpoint to look at is, like, we're no longer looking at individual people's lives and how they're struggling, but rather, what is a bare maintenance cost for the, like, reproduction of your working class on the whole? So with that in mind, why is it that the subways are going downhill in America? Why is it that America can tolerate such a low standard of living for the worst among the laborers in America. I mean, the answer to me seems that like, well, they don't actually rely on the workforce in America. They rely on the workforce abroad. To what extent will determine how shitty life is in America for the working class people here? Yeah, I think that uh, what would happen that would stop that backslide is if conditions got so bad that it actually started hurting the the capitalists that, that it actually started hurting the economy in a significant way well it it has that's donald trump right <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah like the american bourgeoisie didn't want him and it was a backlash from a bunch of like reactionary minded but you know a lot of poor off people who wanted a shock yeah um so mark says capital cares nothing for the length of life of labor power all that concerns it is simply and solely the maximum of labor power that can be rendered fluent in a working day, it, atten- or it attains this end by shortening the extent of the laborer's life as a greedy farmer snatches increased produce from the soil by robbing it of its fertility. So it's like the point of it is <laughs> just to see yeah, yeah, how yeah. much you could possibly extract before you're no longer mm. like before you have nothing left to extract. Yeah, th- that is actually what I, uh, I was watching this interview with David Harvey on global capitalism right now, and he was saying like the system sometimes has to stop the individual capitalists from fucking up capitalism mm. because the individual right. capitalist will want to like work his workers to death, let's say. But if everyone does that, then there will be no more workforce for you to extract surplus labor from. So the system has to actually keep it up that, you know, it, it constricts working hours so that you keep having a surplus extract. This is why Lenin says that social democracy is the most comfortable place for capitalism to thrive. That yeah, that makes sense actually. Like, because, because it, it actually keeps capitalism its excesses. Right, so. it stops it from eating itself. Yeah, it's an insulator. Yeah. Or at least yeah. slows the the growth of the cancer. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then the question to me becomes 
like now we start to introduce the notion of the state and how the state can moderate the individual psychophantic impulses of a single capitalist. But whereas the initial threat would be due to the danger of a lack of productivity, I guess, like the argument we're spelling out is that if you overexploit the working class on the whole, they won't be productive enough. But in America, um, because you're not relying on enough productive labor from Americans to, the, to keep the economy going, it seems like the balance will shift rather to political power, as in revolution, or to overconsumption, as in climate change. Well, and this explains wholeheartedly why we have military bases all over the world. Why we're the only country that does that. And it's because we need to keep our labor uh, interests in check in order to make sure that we have our the ability to continue ex- exploiting our laborers, basically. There's so much more they can continue to suck out of us if we've already exploited so much labor outside of us. <laughs> so, like, I mean, we have to keep that up if they want to continue keeping the ruse that we're benefiting from this. I thought it was to keep people safe. Oh, God. <laughs> if everybody is working, if your whole workforce is employed and then the capitalist starts to overpressure it, then struggle takes a form of labor struggle, right? the employed workforce tries to fight for better wages. But right. America has a relatively really low employment rate. And in fact, the, the percentage of the population that is part of the labor force as in actively looking for labor is shrinking. A lot of people left the 08 financial crisis and eventually just gave up on trying to find work. And they became, right. I mean, they stopped being counted in unemployed statistics. So, you know, when those people are pressed enough, what kind of struggle do they go to? Do they skip straight to the socialist struggle? if they don't have a labor struggle in the middle to start teach, to start teaching them how to organize? Like one thing I think is, is really pre- prevalent in, in at least American culture, as far as I can see, is um, capitalist realism, basically. Like I just see that uh, even here in Germany, when you start talking to people, one of the first things I encounter is just you have to ask this question. Why are you taking it for granted that you work eight hour workdays now? You do realize that that has been a struggle that people have died to get you to eight hour workdays instead of 12. Also, why are you taking it for granted that in, in the US or Amazon telling its workers not to organize is, it's, is OK because it's a private company and it gets to do its own policies? I do come across people like that. Why do you think they get to control what the worker does in the workplace. And why do you think you shouldn't be paid for your commute? They're like, ah, but it's on your own personal time. But then you're like, why are you taking that for granted? It's that like unemployment attitude though, that keeps us desperate for work that makes us willing to compromise things that we should have. So like having a job that pays a shit or like tells us that we can't unionize is Mm -hmm. like, well, but I have to pay rent or I don't have a place to live. And those most exploited, exploitative companies employ are the people who have the least choice on who they work for. So that's, I mean, that's exactly the trick is they keep us desperate enough to work for whatever. Yeah, and this is multiplied, um, you know, by, by some extent uh, to the fact that, you know, going back to labor statistics, like, yeah, a lot of people have dropped out, but also... You know, a lot of the, you know, we see every quarter, you know, 250,000 jobs have been added. You know, the vast majority of these new jobs that are being added are precarious labor. They're, you know, gig work, right? Or, yeah, it's all, it's all gig right. jobs. And that's, that's becoming in the form of these new jobs being added, but also on the other end of the statistics, the existing job base being eroded 
and you know the full-time work what would have been salaried work turned into shift work and more and more precarious labor because this puts us in a less powerful place to negotiate and are easier uh more more easier uh, to to be exploited in in various ways yeah and gig workers like myself work like seven platforms so like yeah there's a whole yeah. lot of gig jobs added but i have seven of them <laughs> like super cool <laughs> also i'm like a, i'm a self-employed so i don't really have anybody to have grievances with because you know i work for myself so i get to do all my own taxes pay my double fica like thank thank god i know how to do my own taxes but the majority of the people that were pushed into gig work don't so it's a lucky thing that there are like companies that will take tons of your money to help you do it but um yeah, it's a really shitty situation to be in. And companies like Uber and Deliveroo, they're like really pushing hard to stop people from unionizing and to stop them from having any kind of representation. Right. Well, I mean, their entire business model is predicated on the fact that they don't have to pay um, any sort of right. benefits. I mean, it's, their business literally won't work if they have to do that. Uh, I mean, which is good. Um, but, you know, like that's, that's why Uber has like a whatever, like a, a $12 trillion uh, valuation is because they, they don't pay anyone benefits. Oh, but it's okay because they point you to a third party to purchase them. Yeah. Wait, but you don't think that valuation is because of the prospect of automating that job? Well, that as well. Yeah, of course. Did anyone see that article that came out a few months ago? And it was like, why growing inequality is a good thing. Like completely unironically. <laughs> it's like because we get we get food delivered to us Yikes. and we can get taxis whenever we want. Yo, in the Ontario elections, there was this jackass that ran for like conservative uh candidate or whatever, and he was just trying to be Donald Trump, but he was too elitist to be Donald Trump. Um <laughs> so like he was making the argument on TV, like, oh yeah, inequality is good because then people will work hard to try and get to the top. And so actually worldwide inequality <sighs> is a good thing. Like uh, today, I saw a video about that that cursed movie, Pursuit of Happiness, yeah, oh, the Will God. Smith movie. God, that's and, sad. Yeah, and the, the it was an upbeat. It was a fucking upbeat three minute video about how inspiring his story is. And but the no. the big problem is that guy became a class trader. Like he he literally became a millionaire. It was like, oh, okay, now I'll buy my two Ferraris and I'll go like open my own <laughs> stockbroking company. And then Will Smith was so inspired that he had to make a movie about him. And like for two and a half minutes out of the three minutes, it's like saying, yeah, they had to sleep in bathrooms and motels and, you know, go to soup kitchens and homeless shelters. They never gave up, you know, and just never give up on your dreams. And I'm like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> like, what, what the yeah, actual fuck, fuck are you, you talking about? Does capitalist realism talk about that movie? No. no, I don't think it does. I would have loved if it had, but... Uh, okay, I know that somebody has, anyway... Has made analysis of that, probably. Yeah, or, somebody's brought yeah. that up before. Maybe it was John the Liquor guy on Rev Up Radio. He's, like, fighting yeah, for, be. like, an unpaid internship, right? Like, that's what yeah, he's that doing too. in this movie. Like, he's not even getting fucking paid for the job that he fought so hard to get. Oh, he didn't even know it was going to be an unpaid internship. He got an interview, and he was happy about the interview, and they were like, yeah, two months unpaid internship. Also, all the, there were like 30 people vying for the unpaid internship. Sorry, 30 people vying for the actual job doing the unpaid yeah. internship, and only yeah. one of them actually got the job. And the movie yeah. touch is like, oh, what about the rest of those people? Like, <laughs> uh, 
They went and died. Who yeah. cares? And and for him to actually ex- excel enough to get that job, he actually dehydrated himself so he wouldn't have to take bathroom breaks so he could do more client calls. So fucking inspiring, right? Yeah. I'm feeling inspired. Yeah, those boots must be delicious. <laughs> so if anyone wants to like read more about the analysis of this sort of ideology, it's the book is Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher. I would love for like an ML to take on some of those themes and talk about how to break it down, but those are some really, really fantastic and illuminating essays. Yeah, yeah. It's great. That we was, should do it. It was a really good book. Yeah, we oh, should. Yeah. yeah, so what are we going to read next? <laughs> now, on that note, uh, <laughs> wait, sorry, not on that note, on a different note, on related to Working Day, um, mm-hmm. which this chapter is about. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, in... The unpaid internship thing. I saw some Twitter drama about that a couple of weeks ago. It's like, is it ethical to take an unpaid internship job? Uh, and no. I don't, actually, let's not open that question up because I don't want to go there. But, you know, unpaid internships are a new phenomenon, right? Sort of. Ish. Like, um, I, I just remembered part of the, the chapter. Uh, Marks mentioned something where uh, part of the wage they would give, like, little children I like how they would calculate is like you're working under a master like under yeah, uh, yeah. an adult and you're learning from them so we don't pay you fully because it's a part of our pay it's the apprenticeship exactly mm. and I don't know that that actually could feed into the idea of an unpaid internship because that's how they tell you we're giving you experience you know that's that's the whole shtick but they still got paid who are oh, the kids yeah but they got paid less. Like, yeah, yeah. They, it was calculated that you know part of your value, part of the value uh, you're producing is g- getting back to you in the form of teaching. And then unpaid internship is basically worse than the conditions of ten-year-old kids in in. Okay, not worse. No. <laughs> <laughs> we have a training. We have a lot of jobs here that have like training wages too, where you get paid shit for yeah. training and then get paid like almost a little bit better if you make it past like three months of them exploiting your labor. That was a big thing that the uh, liberals introduced in Western Canada is a, uh, a $6 wage for uh, people who have low experience. Thanks. $6. Strides, huh? Do you know the minimum wage doesn't apply in America to people with disabilities? What? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. Or people with commission or tipped wages, they also don't have to be paid a minimum wage. Yeah, tip that I knew. I knew that service industry thing. That I knew, but I did yeah. not know about the disabled. That's fucked up. Yeah, they argue like, oh, these people wouldn't be able to find work otherwise unless we let them yep. get paid. Uh, under- we're doing them a favor by exploiting them ten times more than every other worker in this place. Right. And it's because like if they get disability, they have to like work a certain amount to even get access to disability pay. Like, so it's just bullshit because oh, if you're a certain amount of able, you have to work in order to get your disability pay or at least have to be actively looking for it. And like these companies that employ people who do have disabilities, they oftentimes will get like uh, federal or state subsidies uh, for the pay. So they are actually paying them even less than minimum wage and a lot of their pay comes from tax subsidy, which, like, realistically, I don't have a problem with the subsidy. I have a problem with the fact that everyone's like, eh, this worker's not worth their work. Mm-hmm. Mm. This is what happens when you don't class struggle. 
right? <laughs> or maybe when you don't talk about it. But at least Bernie will save us. Oh, <laughs> we gotta change the system from inside. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I do you know uh, you guys probably know I do physics like this is my like my undergrad right now. Um, I oh, you don't study Marxism in school? No, actually, <laughs> I, <laughs> physics. I don't know Marxist physics. That would be interesting. Does it let you do um, that? Can I just be a communist major? <laughs> <laughs> in China, probably. <laughs> Materialist science. I guess we gotta move. <laughs> so I did my thesis with like a research group, and you know, as a um, I, I just recently got thinking about that reading Marx and especially the working day thing. I spent five months there doing like a tiny bit of research, but still research for something they got paid for. Like you get the grant to the research group and they pay everyone there. The Like there's this big thing in in Germany, at least that I know of, is uh, PhD students get paid for 20 hours a week, but they always work full time. But they only get paid for 20 hours a week. Like that's apparently a thing that, you know, uh, even though they're actually doing cutting edge research, they still get paid less than a full job. That's really common here. Yeah, I think that's that's everywhere. But like yeah. I was doing my thesis on like an, a readout chip to calibrate it that they're going to use later on. Like I was literally doing at least the grunt work that the higher up couldn't do because he didn't have time. He he is pretty busy, but I wasn't paid for that. Like I, I was doing work for them. I wasn't I am getting like, you know, my my degree in return. But that doesn't mean that suddenly that substitutes for the material needs I would have needed if I wasn't getting supported by my parents while doing this work. It's like artists being expected to work for exposure. Like it's that's exactly yeah. what yes. it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean you're probably paying for your degree as well. Yeah. Someone from the Discord is teaching a course, they're a PhD student and they're teaching a course this fall. The TA is getting paid more than them. What? Wow. Jesus. I was thinking of actually organizing or trying to start agitating in my physics department. Like bachelor students deserve to be paid. I wanna, I wanna, yeah, I wanna see how that works out or see if there's anything along those lines already. There's a bunch of student union, like grad student union struggles going on right now in Boston. Mm -hmm. What, like, what is the theme of them? What are they like advocating for? Like, I, I'm sure it's like the same sort of thing. Like bad working mm -hmm. conditions, not really being recognized as workers, um, yeah. and also the university interfering in their attempts to form a union as well. Yeah, okay. Because universities are corporations. Mm -hmm. Neoliberal academy. The neoliberal academy. Fucking. Yeah, like the conservatives actually do have it a little bit right about how colleges are a little bit of a liberal bash. <laughs> They're definitely pro-liberalism, <laughs> not leftism. <laughs> Capital L liberalism. Though. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want any actual dissent. Just the illusion of it. Hashtag resist. Yeah. So were, they, were there any other working day related concepts or things from the chapter we should cover before we just veered off topic areas? I think um, David Harvey talks a little bit at the beginning about temporality. Oh, yeah. That was so good. And just how our entire idea of time comes from, comes from capitalism. Like the idea of having a working day, a working week, 
your entire lifetime mm-hmm. of work it all comes from the same the same source and how like i guess under a different mode of production our idea of time would be entirely different yeah that's also capitalist realism like that's also like builds into taking this for granted well if you think about it kind of dialectically the construction of time arrived in a very similar process as the construct of money and capital like in that it was all used to find a more efficient way of denoting things that become a factor of profit. Well, David Harvey actually goes on to talk about how time discipline had to be forced onto the working masses because when they were displaced from their land in the, mm. you know, proletarianization of the working yeah. population, a lot of them were like, well, fuck this, I'm not going to go be a wage slave. And they just like wandered the streets as vagabonds and so on. <laughs> And that's when you started to see super like punitive anti-vagabond laws and things like that, because they uh, literally had to round up their workforce and like teach some time discipline by force. And then David Harvey also talks about like apparently these awful sounding notes from colonial administrators trying to describe like, oh, yeah, these tribes are like a big pain in the ass to teach time discipline to these these foreign people just don't have any concept of time discipline. They're so stupid and savage. And it's also, yeah, exactly. It's it's taken as if they are backwards uh, because of that. Like, there's something that is uh, wrong about not having the conception of time that you have under capitalism. Like, if you don't, you know, separate your time into wake up, work, rest a bit, go to sleep, suddenly, if you don't, like, leave out that big chunk in your day for work, then you don't have the proper civilized discipline to participate in society. He also talks about time discipline in the universities and how deadlines are enforced upon people. He has this great anecdote where he had on his desk for a long time a copy of a letter from Marx's publishers to him. And it says, Dear Herr Dr. Professor, it comes to our attention that you're six months late with the manuscript of Das Kapital. If we do not receive the text within the next six months, we'll have to commission someone else to write it. That's great. (laughs) Wait, was that a real, was that actually a letter Marx received or was that a joke? I think he said he had that a copy of that letter on his desk. Oh, okay. I thought it was a joke saying, like, who else can write capital? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it is a joke, but it, it happened, too. That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> like, they really thought somebody else could write that book? Right. <laughs> maybe, like... yeah, maybe Engels, but I don't think they would have gone to him. <laughs> I mean, Engels did write the other two volumes. Marx would have had to written it anyways because he would have had to dunk on whoever wrote it. (laughs) 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 Oh god, yeah. Feels like it. Feels like like he he devotes a lot of his time to that. Like seriously, wasn't there once this where Engels is like, yeah, Marx didn't do anything productive for like a year and a half because he was busy dunking on another dude and wrote a two hundred page. This track, basically. <laughs> in the Marx anime, there's a section where Angles is like, Marx, you're super busy. I'll go take the time to dunk on this guy. <laughs> and that's where we get uh, anti-during, uh, from which comes utopian, scientific, and... Sorry, yeah, yeah. socialism, utopian, and scientific. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing that I wanted to mention, um, you know, for the people listening to this, because uh, I think they exist, I'm going to believe... <laughs> Um, they're out there and uh, haven't read the book uh, and are are sort of using this as a primer Um, 
this chapter is is really really interesting and it has a lot of theoretical stuff that we didn't or sorry non-theoretical stuff that we didn't really get into um just because it's it's a lot of sort of historical hashing over of how horrible the victorian workhouses are and stuff um i just don't want you to get the idea that it's a, a thin chapter for one um, <laughs> no. or that it's, it's it's not really worth reading because there's a lot of really really interesting anecdotes and historical fact in here um, it's it's awesome, if a little bit depressing. It's also one that can be read on its own because it does not Absolutely. have the theoretical um, depth that you need from the first three chapters for the chapters before this. So this can be read on its yeah. own. Mostly history work uh, separates uh, maybe a bit. You'll be weirded out by the definition of the workday as necessary and surplus labor, but you know should should be an easy read after that. It's only like 80 more pages after that. So like if yeah. you can get through the first two pages of chapter 10, it yeah. stands alone. <laughs> Wait, did you find the first few pages harder? No, just that they were more relevant to the terms that we used prior. Oh, I see. Than the rest of the chapter. Gotcha. And also if you if you really like being bummed out about bad working conditions, um, like a lot in this chapter, you can go to Engels, The Condition of the Working Class in England. That's yeah. It's just a book full of this pretty much. Okay, so in this chapter, Marx is really breaking down the tension between how much time is spent on necessary versus surplus labor. So the two things, like, first of all, is this attention from which the entire class struggle, uh, like, comes out of? Is this really the key point that we have all of this class conflict coming out of? And the second question, why is it that in this chapter, Marx is talking about, uh, like, the amount of time spent on each, but... You know, in other contexts, we're talking about how much money you get paid, and you don't even question how much of it is spent on surplus versus variable amount. Yeah, I, I didn't get the last part about the money being paid and the surplus and... and uh... Yeah, so why do we struggle to get paid more rather than struggle to work less? I think we do both. Uh, speak for yourself, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> but what was the first part of your question? Yeah, so the two questions, like, one, is this basically the fundamental tension from which the entire class struggle draws out of? And two, why do we fight for wages instead of hour cuts? Well, the fight for hour cuts was done before, I'd argue, at least now. Like, that's why we have an eight-hour workday that supposedly we're happy with, and now we just want to get paid more. I don't want to work eight hours. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like less. I think people are pushing for six. I think we've been convinced that an eight hour day is standard now. Like, because I, I mean, I think that most of us, at least uh, in our political positioning, agree that an eight hour day is actually excessive. And yeah. I think that as a society, we are not convinced of that. And we still like we're still convinced of concepts like overtime. Yeah. But isn't there a, a Scandinavian country that has six hour work days and three day weekend? Perfect. <laughs> Maybe Norway. <laughs> Uh, let me check. Uh, Norway or Finland, one of those. I think there was places where they have trialed that, but I don't think it's permanent policy anywhere. Doesn't Cuba have a 30-hour work week? I don't know. I think the, um, the delineation between like hours worked and amount paid does come down to a little bit of psychology and your, your direct material interests. I, I think it's, it's more clear to people that getting paid more money is, is immediately in your material interest rather than working less. I, th I think that it's, it's, it's probably that simple. I think that our bosses already own so much of our time anyways. 
like we they already own our full day we're just only getting paid for eight hours like especially people that are the poorest they don't have like schedule um reliability and like like I worked a place for four and a half years where I didn't know what I was working on Monday until Sunday and like that was super normal for that to happen so really they owned my entire next week until I knew on Sunday when they could let me go and so like I think that we're all ready um of like the mindset that they own us (laughs) all the time and so we're just like hey we need more money while I'm doing the thing (laughs) I think as well it does come down a little bit to Protestant work ethic um where you know not wanting to work hard and forever uh is is seen as a really negative trait in a lot of places i mean i was raised um mormon and i mean i don't know anybody else that was like necessarily other specific religious concepts that relate to this but i mean there's like a song called put your shoulder to the wheel and like we're taught that idleness is like going to be like how you end up like idleness basically is like how the devil gets you it's like if you're not busy then you can't be like next to god and like is it idle hands or the devil's plaything something like that. that's exactly something like that or idle hands do the devil's work or something like that um but yeah that's basically what i was taught and that like you need to be constantly constantly working which, I mean, I'm pretty sure we know at this point that if you never shut off and you're constantly just droning away, then you don't have time to think about why the hell you're doing it. And I'm a programmer, and part of my contract is actually, like, any stuff I write, even not for my work, like, if I just wrote code for fun, my company technically owns it. Oh, what? Oh, right, yeah. That's very standard. Like, they literally have a contract on my fucking brain. Mm-hmm. That's super common, especially for major tech companies. Just a disclaimer on the on the country that has a four hour uh, four day work week and six hour work days. That was apparently was Sweden, or or like it was an experiment for two years in Sweden, and apparently one firm in New Zealand did that experiment too. From just my skimming right now, it's like yeah, apparently you know it uh, it was good. Productivity looked to be good and better even. Um, and also one thing when, while skimming, that was interesting is like, yeah, the company also saved like 20% on electricity because the employees were not in the office for that time. And it's like, (laughs) yeah, that's why when you work them less, you don't get less profit because you're still using the other stuff you usually pay for less. Like that also happens. It's not this last hour argument where like, they're only producing profit in my last hour. You take that away from me. I die. You're still paying to, to run the means of production. Yo, David Harvey brought up an example about, like, some place in the UK, and I don't know the time, where they, like, put everybody on a three-day work week, and they just, like, shut off the electricity for the entire city the rest of the time. But then people got pissed because they couldn't watch TV, and then, like, birth rates shot up for nine months later until people got <laughs> the policy <laughs> But David Harvey also talks about, like... Uh, you know, cutting the amount of hours and massively boosting the rate of exploitation. Like, you know, they found in some cases where people were working six hours, the capitalists would just drive them to work like twice as hard in those six hours and even get yeah. more than that. I do think it's one of the central contradictions of capital, the length of the working day. It's not something that's being taught in classical economics or anything like that, but 
the start of the chapter, he sets up that whole hypothetical conversation between the worker and the capitalist, where he says, quote, The time during which the worker works is the time during which the capitalist consumes the labour power he has bought from him. If the worker consumes his disposable time for himself, he robs the capitalist. I think that does contain a really central conflict. Mm -hmm. mm. Like I also feel like it's something that a boss will never want to talk about. Like, why are you working me this long? Can you actually show me the numbers of if I don't work this much, you'll lose this and this much profit and stuff like that. That is something that I feel like will you'll need a lot of badgering before you get something out of that out of them. Yeah, I think it's one of the central at least contradictions also in, in you know, the relationship of worker um, employer employee is that the one will never really tell the other how much of the work they or show the other how much of the work they goes to them and how much actually goes to their pockets. Well, because it really brings in that idea of class struggle. It's like in terms of like exchange an employer has the right to say, I bought your labor for the day. I'm going to get you to work 24 hours. And the employee also has the right to say, I sold you this. I'm going to tell you what terms I'm going to work on. And so I think he says, like, between two rights, force wins. Right. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Between two equal rights, force decides. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's only an honest negotiation if uh, both people are on an equal footing, right? And why is it that the capitalists win this debate, win this negotiation? Is it because there are fewer of them so they can coordinate better? I don't think it's they win the debate. They don't convince everyone it's right. They just, like like he said, force decides. They've got force on their side. Yeah, it's a matter of sheer necessity. Yeah, our needs are stronger. If the capitalist doesn't win that specific gamble, then they just go on to do capital another day. Or they just, you know, they become a laborer themselves. But, like, that's the biggest risk of a capitalist failure is becoming themselves part mm. of the workforce. Like for us, like our failure as a worker, if we can't participate, then we don't get to have food, clothing or shelter. But also the fact that, first of all, you have a reserve workforce, uh, reserve unemployed workforce, it, because right. if you have less people than there are jobs, then the workers in the stronger position of you don't hire me, nobody gets your shit done. When the other way around how it is now is basically you don't want to work under my conditions, I hire the next more desperate person who will work under those conditions. Right. There's always somebody more desperate. Yeah. I could actually tell a funny story. I'll do that later on when we're not recording because I'll get way into how I like. There's nobody who works up here, so I just leverage my boss to make him pay everybody on the, the job seven bucks an hour more. <laughs> because like, Hire somebody else, motherfucker. Like, good luck. There's nobody here. We're in the middle of nowhere. Nobody's applying. Hey. You're going to pay us. And we got paid. And it's like, we don't, we like, when we're this desperate, we almost don't even need a union because they're desperate too. It's just like, yo, we're shutting it down. There's two workers and we're getting paid. Yeah, that's kind of like the position that you can, the rare position you can be in in a labor job too, like, uh, I'm one of the people that I work very, very good. And so it's more like fiscally efficient, I guess, mm -hmm. to have me on shift than to employ two people to do the same thing. So that's the only time where like if you're if labor is scarce or if you are a laborer who is worth more than what you're being paid. That's the only time you have like any sort of leverage whatsoever. But no matter what I was able to leverage in those positions, I still was getting screwed over because like 
I was really doing two people's hmm. jobs. Yeah. So yeah. I should have been paid for two people's fucking jobs. Mm-hmm. But that's that's the other end of why how people get exploited is you either get like moved into a management position where you get salary and end up working like 15 hours on top of the hours you're actually getting paid or you end up working a position where you are worth more than the hourly that they're paying you and they're making more money off of your labor time than you're even ever going to be comfortable. Yeah. Um, so we've been going for two hours now. <laughs> Do we want to stop recording? <laughs> About an hour and a half though, right? Yeah. I mean, this this section was very fun and loose, so we could. This is kind of all the whole thing of yeah. bonus, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we can cut Craig, kick Craig out, and then whenever. Yeah, yeah. We people want to leave, stop. they can leave. Okay, bye, Craig. Bye, Craig. <laughs> bye, Craig. Bye. 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 Hey, that was Proles of the Book Club. If you want to support our parent podcast or join the book club, you can chip in a buck to the Proles of the Roundtable Patreon and join us in the Discord server. We're on Twitter at Proles Book Club, and if you have any questions or need companion resources we haven't already linked, you can just DM us there. Thank you to the Craigbot for helping us record on this Discord, and thanks to Keenan for the intro theme. Next week, we'll be starting Chapter 11. 